Welcome to the Say the Word podcast, where we'll dig into words and language as tools for curiosity. I'm your host, Cindy Givinoli, and together we're going to explore how language is used in literature, memoir, poetry, and all kinds of fiction and nonfiction to connect us to what it means to be human and how to use curiosity to peel back the layers of what's keeping us from living the rich, meaningful lives we were always meant to be living. Hi there, and welcome back. So at the end of last week's episode, I wasn't sure yet whether I was going to stick with my original plan for this week or go with something else. This week is the final nonfiction selection for season one, and I wondered if I should do another piece of poetry instead of prose. I flip-flopped a bit. Ultimately, I just couldn't let go of my original choice for this week, so here we are getting ready to spend some time with Robin Wall Kimmerer's incredible book, Braiding Sweetgrass. Now, there are three books that I always keep extra copies of on hand to give away. Elizabeth Gilbert's book, Big Magic, Brian Doyle's One Long River of Song, and this one. I have read or listened to it multiple times, and every time something new stands out to me. Now, if you aren't familiar with her work, Robin Wall Kimmerer is a botanist and professor, and she's an enrolled member of the Citizen Potawatomi Nation. In this book, she winds together her scientific training and stories of indigenous knowing to create conversation about our reciprocal relationship with the rest of the living world. It is a stunning blend of story and science and ways of thinking that feels to me like just a celebration of curiosity and contribution. Now, I want to offer just a little context for the selection I've chosen for today. Prior to the passage I'm about to share, Kimmerer began talking about language, and she shares her experience of her first taste of language that was missing in her life. She'd stumbled on the word papoi in a book by an Anishinaabe ethnobotanist that translates as the force which causes mushrooms to push up from the earth overnight. And she felt blown away that such a word existed one that went beyond reductionist terms and captured some greater mystery. She decided that the language that held Popoe was one that she wanted to speak, and then she learned that it was the language of her own ancestors. At a tribal gathering, she decided to attend a language class, which is where our passage will pick up. So from Robin Wall Kimmerer's Braiding Sweetgrass. There was a great deal of excitement about the class because for the first time, every single fluent speaker in our tribe would be there as a teacher. When the speakers were called forward to the circle of folding chairs, they moved slowly with canes, walkers, and wheelchairs, only a few entirely under their own power. I counted them as they filled the chairs. Nine. Nine fluent speakers in the whole world. Our language, millennia in the making, sits in those nine chairs. The words that praised creation, told the old stories, lulled my ancestors to sleep, rest today in the tongues of nine very mortal men and women. 
each in turn addresses a small group of would-be students. A man with long gray braids tells how his mother hid him away when the Indian agents came to take the children. He escaped boarding school by hiding under an overhung bank where the sound of the stream covered his crying. The others were all taken and had their mouths washed out with soap, or worse, for, quote, talking that dirty Indian language. Because he alone stayed home and was raised up calling the plants and animals by the names Creator gave them, he is here today, a carrier of the language. The engines of assimilation worked well. The speaker's eyes blaze as he tells us, We're the end of the road. We are all that is left. If you young people do not learn, the language will die. The missionaries and the U.S. government will have had their victory at last. A great-grandmother from the circle pushes her walker up close to the microphone. It's not just the words that will be lost, she says. The language is the heart of our culture. It holds our thoughts, our way of seeing the world. It's too beautiful for English to explain. Papoe. Jim Thunder, at 75, the youngest of the speakers, is a round, brown man of serious demeanor who spoke only in Potawatomi. He began solemnly, but as he warmed to his subject, his voice lifted like a breeze in the birch trees, and his hands began to tell the story. He became more and more animated, rising to his feet, holding us rapt and silent, although almost no one understood a single word. He paused as if reaching the climax of his story and looked out at the audience with a twinkle of expectation. One of the grandmothers behind him covered her mouth in a giggle, and his stern face suddenly broke into a smile as big and sweet as a cracked watermelon. He bent over laughing, and the grandmas dabbed away tears of laughter holding their sides, while the rest of us looked on in wonderment. When the laughter subsided, he spoke at last in English. What will happen to a joke when no one can hear it anymore? How lonely those words will be when their power is gone. Where will they go? Off to join the stories that can never be told again. So now my house is spangled with post-it notes in another language, as if I were studying for a trip abroad. But I'm not going away. I'm coming home. For some reason, I always have such a hard time reading that entire passage without getting a little choked up. So I want to begin right with this first paragraph. She says that there were nine fluent speakers in the whole world. Our language, millennia in the making, sits in those nine chairs. The words that praised creation, told the old stories, lulled my ancestors to sleep. And right here in this handful of short sentences, she captures the vital importance of language, doesn't she? The words that praised creation, told the old stories, lulled my ancestors to sleep. Language that was a millennia in the making. I mean, we can see the importance on the larger cultural scale intended here, certainly, right? And I can't help but wonder what this could look like if we applied the same idea to the language we use in our own individual lives. We are the sole fluent speakers of our own stories, the sole knowers of the mysteries to be found in our own heart houses, where we, of course, live alone. That unique alchemy of nature and nurture, of DNA and experiences and thought processes that make up each of us creates a sort of language all its own. 
or perhaps more accurately, it asks that we dive deep into the language we speak and search for ways to use it that go beyond the general, that begin to capture what it means to be the utterly singular entity that each of us is. I mean, this is at the heart of this entire podcast, to explore how language can be used to unlock all of what we hold within us, to find the words that can bring to life our joy, our love, our pain, that can give life to our stories and shape to our existence. So I'm going to come back to this because I am definitely not finished with it yet, but I do want to talk about a few more aspects of this passage before we circle back here. So in the next paragraph, a man tells the story of how he was hidden from the government agents who stole the children of indigenous families and forced them to go to boarding schools where they were stripped of their history and cultural identities. He talks of how the children there had their mouths washed out with soap if they spoke their own language, and he comments that the engines of assimilation worked well and that their language is at great risk. This imagery is so striking to me. The image of children being punished for speaking their own language, the language with which they communicated with their loved ones, their culture, language that was tied to their relationship to the land and to the larger living world is absolutely devastating. And again, I can't help but wonder what this looks like on a micro scale in each of our own lives. How have each of us been assimilated in some way? How are our mouths washed out until we conformed to a language of self that may not have been entirely our own? How has our language been changed through our conditioning? Depending on each of our backgrounds and social circles and family dynamics, this might look a lot of different ways. In what ways was your language adjusted or corrected as a child? What qualified as bad words or unacceptable language? How might your views of the world have been shaped by this? How are others spoken of, other languages or cultures, other faiths? Get curious here. As we enter a time where there is a better understanding of inclusivity and microaggressions, I think there is an increased awareness of the ways in which language can be used as a tool of oppression or identity. And we're also seeing through the lens of cancel culture that even inclusivity in language can be weaponized. So these are questions worth asking ourselves. How have the engines of assimilation impacted how we view and communicate with ourselves? with others, with a larger world? How has it impacted our relationship to that larger world? What conditioning has taken place? What literal or metaphorical words or sentences landed a bar of soap in our mouths? And how might that have impacted our ability to communicate and connect with ourselves, our own loved ones, our communities, our cultures? How might it have impacted our relationships to the land and our view of where we fit into the living world? I invite you to resist the temptation to jump to your preferred political stance here and to work to stay away from judgment. This is a beautiful opportunity to exercise a deep well of curiosity and investigate to peel away at the layers and just poke around your own history and biases and see where the language you use to interact with yourself and your world 
may have been the subject of conditioning of all sorts. This exploration empowers you to make more informed decisions about how you choose to move through the world and how you interact with yourself and what matters to you. So I want to share a seemingly benign example, but I want to look at it because I think it's telling in a few ways. So a few weeks ago, I stumbled onto a talk that the travel writer and guidebook author Rick Steves gave on PBS at some point before the pandemic. I didn't listen to the entire talk, but he said something that I found myself thinking about since I saw it. And this conversation today just reminds me of it. He was talking about the ways people send their friends and family off on a trip. He said that until the last few decades, the traditional send-off was always bon voyage, which translates directly to mean good journey and is generally interpreted to mean have fun. Today, the standard send-off is safe travels. He made the point that it's generally agreed that much of travel is the safest it's ever been in history, but that the language of farewell now places greater emphasis on the loved one's safety than their enjoyment of their travel experience. He wondered if this didn't inherently contradict the concept of travel to see and experience places outside of our norms and whether the fear underlying this shift in language was impacting how we travel. I can't help but wonder if that language of safety that, as he pointed out, is rooted in fear, isn't telling us something about how we're being conditioned to feel about people and places that are different from what is familiar to us. Bon Voyage invited us to enjoy the exploration. Safe travels warns us to be wary and concerned. These subtle shifts in nuances in language often go unnoticed. I certainly hadn't noticed that one, but since seeing that talk, I've caught myself so many times beginning to wish someone a safe journey rather than a fun one. And it's taking work for me to make that switch back. Conditioning happens in ways big and small, and it is our curiosity and our attention that allows us to make choices about what will allow the engines of assimilation and what we won't. Now, this last section where she tells the story of Jim Thunder and how he tells his story entirely in Potawatomi really hit me. He asks, what will happen to a joke when no one can hear it anymore? How lonely those words will be when their power is gone. Where will they go? Off to join the stories that can never be told again. And again, on a larger cultural level, this is vital work to preserve these stories and jokes in their original forms in the language of their origin. That's huge. And also, when we zoom in to the micro level in our own lives, again, learning to speak the language of our own lives, of our own hearts, that's also vital work. You are a singular entity. Alone in the house of your own heart, you are the only one capable of fluency in the language of what lives within you, the expression of your unique alchemy. Learning to speak of what you find within yourself, learning that you have a right to speak of it, that what is there is precious and valuable and affirming, takes both curiosity and practice. It requires that we stay open, 
that we root around and we explore and test and listen and remain willing to change and refine as we learn. I mean, so what does this look like in our actual day-to-day lives? Well, big surprise, it almost always looks like curiosity and attention. Beginning to take real notice of what you're feeling at any given moment and beginning to explore the words that might be used to describe what you find. Learning not to be satisfied with the first generalized term you land on and asking ourselves how we can get more specific. When you feel the springtime sunshine on your skin and you find a moment of peace and calm in your day, doesn't the word happy fall a bit short? Doesn't it feel so general as to say very little about the fullness of what you are actually experiencing? I mean, what would it look like if we played around with some of the other words? I I like to call the closely related words um, to the like initial general one. I like to call them adjacent. So what words are adjacent to happy? I mean, is content more accurate for what you're feeling? What about relief or fulfilled or energized? I mean, we just have to explore and dig around, play with these other words, test them out, search for the closest one we can find to the full and nuanced layers of what we feel and think and believe. And what if we combined a few? We are complex beings capable of being more than one thing at any given moment. So sometimes words can be combined to create rounder, more complete pictures of all that is happening within us. I mean, this is also a beautiful way to listen to others, to engage with their experiences. What if you were to be curious about the layers that your child or your friend or your partner were feeling? What if when we asked, how are you? We not only actually waited for an answer, but maybe we even asked for more information. Tell me more when said with genuine interest and real curiosity might just be the most powerful way available to us to make someone feel seen and cared for and cared about. I mean, here, Jim Thunder is talking of the stories that can never be told again. Stories lost to us because there's no longer language to hold them. And again, I wonder what stories you are carrying around, what stories live within you that will be lost because you may never have put the words or language to them. No one else can tell your stories with your voice. No one can share your particular perspectives. Now, I know it can be easy to fall into the mistaken belief that for our stories to be worth telling, they must include some grand achievement or survival of something horrific, but it's simply not true. When I think about some of the stories that have had the greatest impact on my life, they are often examples of when someone has found words to capture a profoundly human moment in their own lives. They're the stories that my dear friends have told me about picking themselves up after a divorce or moving to a new place or maybe even just what they felt halfway through a good long trail run when the sun was streaming through the trees. I think of the stories that I've heard of 
my family, the ones that I wish I could ask my grandparents more questions about. I mean, I think of the gaping holes in those stories that are lost to me now because they're gone. My grandparents weren't famous. They didn't merit biographies or make the papers very often. They're just humans living out their regular lives and doing the best that they knew how to do. But I wish that I knew more about what that looked like for them. And I know I'm not alone in that craving. Back in episode eight, I mentioned in passing the Moth Radio Hour. And if you question the value of your own stories, I really urge you to go listen to a few episodes. There are indeed a handful of extraordinary stories, but mostly, mostly they're just stories told by regular people living out their regular human lives. And they're often deeply funny or profoundly moving and exceptional, not because of the large-scale achievement or survival, but because of their powerful humanness and relatability and the courage and vulnerability of the people who chose to put words to a moment or an experience that they lived and to share it with the rest of us so that we could all feel a little less alone as we figure out how to move through these precious lives of ours. You don't have to get on a stage to tell your story and you don't have to publish it or indeed ever make it public at all if that's not something that calls to you. But you can still put words and language to your stories. You can share them with a friend over coffee. You can scribble them into a journal. You can pray them or sing them or weave them into the internal dialogue that you have with yourself each day. Your language does not have to be fancy. Telling your stories does not require an MFA in creative writing. Just pay attention. Lean into your curiosity and look for the words that feel true and right for you. And let them hold the stories that you carry within yourself. So finally, I want to touch on these last two sentences that Kimura writes. She says, So now my house is spangled with post-it notes in another language, as if I were studying for a trip abroad. But I'm not going away. I'm coming home. Oh, I love that so much. How can we embrace language to help us come home? What words can we find? What home are we looking to come to in this moment? How can we use it to come home to ourselves? I mean, it's impossible for me to think about these words that she wrote here and not be reminded of our entire conversation in episode seven, right? Is this not a sort of querencia? Is language not a way of naming and understanding our own sense of place, our identities, our histories, our stories? And isn't it interesting that we have the gift of this word, querencia, to give us the single word that captures the idea of home in much broader terms than simple house or hearth? Is Kimmer not implying that by connecting and learning the language of her ancestors, that by learning how to grasp and better hold the stories and jokes of the language of her history, she's finding a credencia, a place from which to speak her deepest beliefs? We can come home to ourselves by exploring how to use our own words to get at the heart of what we want to grasp within ourselves and to tell our own stories. And, you know, we can also let that curiosity roam wider and 
What if we're to be delighted in the ways that other languages have captured ideas and mysteries that our own English words sometimes fall short of? Carencia is one such word. Kemmer introduces us in this chapter to Popoi, a single beautiful word that describes the force which causes mushrooms to push up from the earth overnight. The German word Fernwa translates literally to far sickness. It's the opposite of homesickness, an ache for new places that goes beyond mere wanderlust. The ache and deep craving are key to the word's meaning. The Swedish word fika goes beyond a mere coffee or tea break. It suggests deeper relaxation and an element of community and connection with others. Similarly, the Scandinavian word huga goes beyond coziness, again implying contentment, warmth, community, and connection. I love the Yiddish word fargen, which engenders the idea of being wholeheartedly happy for the success of another. And I recently learned that there is a Sanskrit and Pali word mudita that shares this concept of genuine joy for the success of others. I mean, how incredible is it that that larger idea has found a home in multiple languages. I think Kimmer just puts it beautifully when she says that she was stunned to learn that a word such as Papoi existed, that there was a word to hold such a mystery. And I feel that for each of these words, and suspect that there are infinite more words like this across the globe. Language is how we pull ideas from the ether and breathe life into them. It's how we give expression to all that lives within us. In this passage, Kimmerer is facing the reality that the language of her ancestry, the language that holds critical pieces of her culture and heritage is endangered, that only nine people in the entire world remain fluent in it. She's sharing the cost of assimilation and what's lost when the words we use to communicate are stolen. She's posing Jim Thunder's question to all of us, asking what happens to stories that can never be told again once they're lost. And she's celebrating the discovery of a path home that's paved with words. It's both a tragic reminder of what stands to be lost and also a powerful invitation to explore our own language, not just the systems of communication, English, Spanish, Potawatomi, but the words within our language and how we wield them. To remember that we are the sole fluent speakers of our own stories, our own feelings and identities, our own perspectives and relationships. To get curious about how conditioning has impacted our language and what that might mean for ourselves and our communities and the relationships between them. To search for ways to put language to our own stories, whether privately or publicly, and to explore how to move past the general and find the words that more precisely capture what it is that we feel or have experienced. To use that exploration to more deeply connect to others, to invite them to share more deeply and specifically for themselves. And finally, to lean into our curiosity, to dig around and explore and to find our own path home. Home to ourselves, home in the sense meant by Carencia, that place from which we can speak our deepest beliefs. Now, again, that was from Robin Wall Kimmerer's book, Braiding Sweetgrass. As always, you can find the link in the, to the book in the show notes at cindygibinoli.com backslash podcast. Now, this week's quote comes from Angie S. She says, I finally got around to reading the book Frog Magic by Emma Donahue. 
It had been recommended to me by several friends, but it took me a while to get around to it. Anyway, I just finished it about a month ago, and this quote from it has popped up into my head over and over since. The quote, People have no idea of the things that don't happen to them, the lives they're not living, the death stalking them, and thank Christ for that. Hard enough to go get through each day without glimpsing all the hovering possibilities like insects thickening the air. And Angie says, There's something gripping about that idea to me, that I'm brushing past other possible lives and deaths all day, every day, and it's brought me a sort of peace. If the possibilities are like insects in the air, there are too many for me to really conceive of, so I guess I just might as well get busy making the most of the one I'm actually living. Oh, Angie, I love that. I had actually never heard of this book until you introduced me, so that quote alone has me intrigued, and I will, of course, be adding it to my ever-growing to-be-read list. Speaking of which, I am looking for recommendations for season two. I'll be spending June doing a ton of reading and planning episodes and would love to make sure that I'm including a wide variety of titles, so please don't be shy. Season two will begin Saturday, July 3rd, but we have one last week here in season one. So next week, we're going to be talking about Renee Watson's young adult novel, Love is a Revolution. So until then, be sure to stay curious out there. That's it for this episode of the Say the Word podcast, where we explore how language is used in fiction, nonfiction, and poetry to connect us to what it means to be human and how to use curiosity to peel back the layers of what's keeping us from living the rich, meaningful lives we were always meant to be living. Be sure to share and subscribe so you don't miss an episode. And I would so appreciate it if you would go ahead and leave a review. Thanks for listening. I'm Cindy Givinoli, and I'll see you next week on Say the Word. Say the Word.